Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. <laughs> Beep, beep, commercial break. Whether you need stress relief, sleep support, recovery, mood boosters, or incredible skincare, our fave clean, climate positive, family farmed, carbon neutral, and responsibly sourced company has got you. They're in Sephora. Forbes called them the Patagonia of CBD, and they have been praised by the New York Times, Fortune Mag, and so many more. And I'll give it to you this way. Their name is Prima. Prima, we love them so much. Prima, you guys, they have amazing doctor-formulated, clinically validated, high-performance products for the skin, body, and mind, like Prima's The Daily CBD Capsules. They help relieve daily stress and keep you focused. There's also Sleep Tight and Rest Easy for helping you fall asleep and stay asleep. And, of course, they have amazing skincare, like my absolute favorite, Night Magic. It's a night oil. It's incredible. Vogue even said, quote unquote, lately I have been swearing by night magic. So that's just Vogue, okay? So lucky for us, Prima's offering our listeners an exclusive limited time 15% off offer with the code GIRLGOV. So head to Prima.co and feel better every day. All right, it is a Wednesday and we are back at it again at Girl on the Go of the Podcast. I mean, here we are, here we, are. Here we is. I just mm, can't believe another day, another Wednesday. Wait, also, it's our 40th mm-hmm. episode. That's kind of cool. <gasps> Ooh, get us some balloons and confetti. I know, 10 more and we're at 50. That's a big milestone, so we're getting there. That is, we'll be middle-aged. I know. Crazy. Oh my god. Crazy, crazy. Well, in that case, break up the New Balance sneakers, which are actually <laughs> hot right now, which kills me in every way. But you know, I mean, get those and a little lawnmower, and we are yep. good to go. Yep. 
But anyways, we did speak with someone super cool for this episode for numero 40. Maddie, do you want to give the four on one? Yes. Today, you guys, we sat down with Eric from Project Superbloom. He is the founder of this pack, and basically it's a pack supporting young people to become the candidates, campaign teams, and policy leads for California's 2022 state legislature races. And we have quite a lively conversation today. Sam got to learn all about California politics and how crazy they are. And I even learned a little bit about California politics because it's very, it's an interesting dynamic to say the least. And so in California, corporations can donate directly to candidates. And so California, as we know, is a largely blue state. We have large Democratic majorities and Corporations contribute hundreds of thousands to their preferred Democrats who are willing to kind of just block progressive legislation and claim to be Democrats and not actually push through the legislation that their constituents wanted when they voted for them. And so California, we really pride ourselves on being a progressive state when in reality, our politicians are deeply in the pocket of the 1% and corporations. And Eric helps us see all of that today. He really sheds light. He really pulls back the curtain. And his pack, Project Superbloom, is really helping tackle this issue. So we're super excited to get into some California politics today because I don't know that we fully have. And it's it's definitely interesting. There's a lot of tea, a lot of tea in this episode. So it's get ready. It's piping hot. And here's Eric. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. I'm originally from the Bay Area, just finished my junior year down at Claremont McKenna College in Southern California, where I'm majoring in environmental analysis and public policy. I came into college really wanting to do marine biology and caring about the oceans. And quickly in freshman year and right around the time of the 2018 midterms, I started to really look at kind of where our country was headed in terms of environmental policy and why the science wasn't being listened to and what the problems were. And right after the 2018 midterms, when the Democrats took back the House, there was a really awesome sit-in the day after uh, the election or the week after the election, where a group called the Sunrise Movement, which is a group of young people trying to, you know, make the Green New Deal popular and, and make climate change a forefront idea in our, in our federal government. They just sit in in the Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office. And that moment for me really ignited an idea of what my theory of change is and, and how politics can further the fight for environmental protections uh, for our country and why for so often we've allowed, you know, corporations to sell the idea that individual action and people need to be making the difference in their everyday lives. Whereas, you know, emissions really come from, you know, our policies and what we allow uh, corporations to do here in the U.S. And, and internationally. And that's such a big part of politics and why I decided to get involved in pushing to elect the leaders who are really going to be bold and, and look towards the future and, yeah. and creating a planet that we can all have. Yes, I love all of that. That's amazing. And so, like, let's talk about Project Superbloom. How did it start? What was the inspiration? Tell us all that. Yeah, so after the 2020 elections, I, I started a chapter of the Sunrise Movement on my, on my own campus back in 2019. And after the 2020 elections, we had worked and endorsed a couple of candidates in the area. And we had over 70 people turn out to phone bank and do social media research and policy for these campaigns. But yet what I found is a lot of the most even politically engaged young people didn't know that these state legislative campaigns were going on right in their backyards. And these are crucial campaigns that you know, the state legislature here in California impacts a lot of people and a lot of policy. 
And so we were trying to think of me and a couple other organizers from around the state with backgrounds in Sunrise and other organizations. How can we get young people who are so politically fired up and attending climate protests and standing up for racial justice and, and for gun rights and, and violence prevention? How can we get that energy into the state legislative elections as well? And so we decided to found Project Superbloom to really elevate young voices and also elevate the politicians who for too long are not being held accountable to their constituents because there's so, so much less news and so much less coverage of what goes on in the state capitol. So many people don't know how their legislators are voting or what's going on because there's so much focus on what happens at the federal government, which in this year isn't a lot because of the gridlock we have and, and the fact that we still have the filibuster and we haven't even passed the For the People Act. So there's stuff going on right now in our state legislature that we can focus on and bring meaningful change to here in California. And we wanted to bring young voices into that conversation and, and get a lot of people who are already excited just to plug into the work of, of electing new legislators who would be more accountable to their communities. I love that. And I think, first of all, I mean, local is so key and people like constantly forget that. But then on the other flip side, you know, I do feel like some of the, you know, locally elected or state elected officials kind of forget about how to be approachable. And my experience with that, especially is like looking at different states' websites of seeing what bills are in action, like what's actually happening. And it's really funny seeing like, for example, like the New York Senate has got their shit together. I got to give them like a little credit. Like it's organized and you're like, oh, so that's what's happening. But if you go to like the Congress, dear God, what is happening? Like it's a total like shitstorm, to be honest. It definitely needs solving, especially if we're going to get like any leadership in there that is going to make change. And of course, one way to make change is through super bloom, through creating a pack. But for our audience that might be new to what a pack is, can you refresh like what that actually means in terms of like a political organization? I feel like there's a lot of different subsets. So I'd love like a little bit of a refresh. Yeah. So a PAC operates kind of in between a, a nonprofit and a candidate's campaign. And so what it can do is raise money directly from donors. So we raise, you know, money from grassroots contributors who chip in to help this work and to help fund, you know, whether it's, you know, paying young people to get into this work, breaking down the barriers that so often are unpaid internships and other things that prevent young people from getting involved and to directly contributing to campaigns, to contributing to our materials that we are going to use when we are, you know, supporting these campaigns. And so people contribute to our work and that's how we operate as a PAC. We're like a campaign in that way and that we raise money and like an organization in that we can recruit members and have, you know, kind of an established base and make endorsements. So a PAC can be explicitly political in nature. And there's a whole lot of regulations and rules in California and federally about what PACs can do. We report our donors every quarter and, and have a whole bunch of regulations and, and compliance that we follow. But basically it's so that we can raise money and, and make critical investments in, in campaigns to support their work. Amazing. Wait, I have a question. Where's the like origin of the name from? Like what, where's the inspiration oh, yeah, for cute. Project Super Blue? Yeah. Yeah. We spent a long time thinking about names. We went back and forth, had a whole long list of like all these things. And, and we were really thinking about what can we you use to represent California? And so we were thinking of all these symbols. There's the bear and there's the ocean and the Sierra Nevadas. And we we're also thinking about the, the California poppy at one point and our state flower. And we got to thinking and we're doing kind of some kind of some research. 
someone came across the idea of a super bloom, which is this huge, like a mass of flowers that happens in Southern California. It's happened, uh, I think two years ago. And it's just this big explosion of colors. And a lot of times what happens is it's based on certain conditions, which can be related to our droughts here in California. It can be related to our wildfires, a lot of different changing things in the climate. And with our environmental background, we really like that idea and the idea of this kind of big uprising of something coming into the scene based on certain conditions. And we feel like this year is the right year and, and you know, progressives and young people are really getting serious about electing new leaders. And, and so this is when the conditions are right. I love that. That's what I thought it was, but we love to hear it. I love all of that. That's super cool. Okay. Well, like, how do you guys select campaigns to get involved with? Like, what is that process like? And honestly, what are kind of your plans this year? And like, how, how is that all going to like function moving forward? Yeah. So mostly so far we've, you know, seen, there's been a couple special elections this year due to a couple different changes in California with the Biden administration. There were a lot of changes in appointments. So Gavin Newsom appointed Assemblywoman Rob Bonta to attorney general, leaving his seat open. And then Assemblywoman Sydney Kamlager won a seat in the state Senate in a special election, leaving her assembly seat open. So we endorsed Isaac Bryan in that first and to replace Sydney Kamlager. That election happened. Isaac won with 51% of the vote, narrowly avoiding a runoff with his next opponent. And he's now in the assembly. He's already taken votes and has already been a critical part of passing some legislation that we were supporting. So we're excited to support Isaac. And the way that came about is just looking at the field, a bunch of candidates declare. We send out a questionnaire to everyone in the race, which asks them about certain bills, whether they support or not, asks them who they take contributions from. Do they take contributions from corporations or the oil industry or law enforcement associations? All kind of groups that have a lot of special interest uh, in lobbying presence in Sacramento. And then we ask a whole bunch of issues about racial injustice, about environmental injustice, and what their plans are to tackle those as legislators, not only for the state, but also for their district. We think, you know, being rooted in community is so important for our legislators. And so we ask them a lot of questions about, you know, how do they plan to materially improve the lives of their constituents and, and what their answers are for that, as well as how they plan to involve youth in those processes. So how, you know, can we play a role in their campaign if we were to endorse them? We think that's a very telling sign as well. If campaigns already have young people on board, if they're, you know, open to the support, that's something that we really also take into account. And just looking at their background and their history, you know, what have they been doing in the past to be able to support, you know, progressive legislation moving forward outside of the assembly? You know, we think people who are, you know, rooted in their community are going to be awesome legislators as well. So we have a questionnaire and kind of keep our ear to the ground for developing races in 2022. We've been talking to a lot of community leaders, local elected officials, organization, political leads about who might run for what and, you know, kind of what seats are going to be open. So we've also just been doing a lot of kind of laying the ground research about what's out there and contacting candidates as they're starting to appear and figuring out, having them fill out the questionnaire and seeing if we'll be a good fit. That's so refreshing too, the part of like making sure they are involving young people and that they want to do that. You know, something we're starting to look at now too is just how there's just a lack of, yeah, like inviting job roles for young people in the political space across the board. There's very few. And like you said, they're like usually unpaid internships or whatever. Whereas usually if you graduate and you want to work in sales or something you can get a job like right away whereas in politics if you really want to work in that space it's honestly it's hard like there's very little jobs and it's really going to take a lot of advocacy to like go to like these orgs and even campaigns and be like are you providing jobs to young people because especially if you're a progressive you claim to want all these things but like 
young people are who are going to get you there. Yeah. But there's always just like a lack of opportunity for young people in entry level jobs and stuff across the political space. So I just love that emphasis. Yeah, seriously. And also like the fact that you guys are like doing such good due diligence and like really finding out, okay, like you're not just a Democrat, you are actually progressive and you like hit these different markers. Is there any like cutoff point for you guys where you're like, this person's a little bit like teetering, like they're somewhere in between like a progressive and more of like a mainstream Democrat. And you have to like figure out like, okay, it's a yes or a no. For sure. And there's a lot of that here in California. I mean, in a state where, you know, Bernie Sanders is able to win the state, there's a lot of incentive for politicians to say, I'm a progressive and and I support universal health care, things that are really popular in California, right? But the difference is, what are they advocating for? We have a lot of legislators who say they support universal health care. When it comes time, the bill, you didn't have that many sponsors in this session and ended up getting pulled because there weren't enough people fighting for it. So who are all these legislators who were saying they supported it? And where did they go as soon as the fight comes? I think that's a really key distinction and something that we look for because there are a lot of people who want to claim a progressive mantle until it gets time to fight the status quo or reject contributions from special interest groups or you know turn down the, the millions of dollars in lobbying that's spent in order to change their minds, to vote a certain way. And we see this with a lot of legislators. They get into office and things change all of a sudden. And so, yeah, we definitely look at that really closely. We don't want to be supporting someone who we pour so much into and then goes to Sacramento and, and becomes a part of the machine, becomes a part of the status quo. And so we we definitely keep that in mind in our deliberations as having a conversation with them and really figuring out where their priorities are and where their priorities have been in the past so that we can kind of gauge where they, you know, what their trajectory is in the community. Totally. No. Oh, my God. I mean, we, we're going to dive into this whole California state politics topic in a little bit. But before we do and before we just start rambling about it, because I'm sure we could all go on forever. Let's get into our I have a stupid question segment first. And to start, we want to ask a question that is relevant to what you do. And that is just asking, like, what is a grassroots campaign? How does that work? Can you give us like the, the background there? Yes. So a grassroots campaign is defined as a campaign that's really built upon and, and wanting to be supported by average people. This is grassroots contributions. People like Bernie Sanders unveiled a, a small dollar army to power his campaign, whereas campaigns of other candidates, people like Joe Biden and some of the others, relied on a lot of big dollar contributions, people who can max out donations to their campaigns and give, you know, go to fancy fundraisers, right? Grassroots is the reverse of that. It's wanting to find people in your community, get them to chip in $5, $10, $15 to your movement. So it's a big part of the funding. It's rejecting corporations. It's rejecting large contributions and and all these things from these, you know, ultra wealthy and special interests. And it's instead being funded by the regular people. And then there's also a big component of that is your campaign. So are you running a campaign that's focused on people? Are you recruiting a big volunteer army or are you requiring you know, a bunch of money to put on the airwaves instead and focusing on that as your way to get the word out? How are you engaging the community in your campaign beyond just spending money on TV ads and, and consultants and mailers? How, who are the people that are supporting your campaign? And if it's a big group of community activists, that's grassroots. Okay, so we've got that end of the spectrum, but you did mention corporations in there, which is the other end of the spectrum. So what are corporate interests? What exactly is that? I feel like that's the most thrown around phrase ever, but like... Especially during campaign and election season. Yeah. For sure. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, ways to tie it to just establishment and status quo, I think, for, for so many. What the corporations want is what's going on right now. If you look at, you know, where our country is in terms of policies and, you know, what Bernie Sanders' campaign was so much about, it was about changing things and transforming, you know, what is currently going on. And for a lot of corporations, that threatens what they have. So, for example, the fight for the minimum wage. California is moving towards a $15 minimum wage. I think it's next year we'll have $15 minimum wage. The fight at the national level opposed by a lot of corporations who don't want to see raising wages and having to pay their workers a living wage in states around the country. And so that would be, you know, a corporate interest to reject the fight for minimum wage. And it is generally, you know, things that are against progressive ideas and, and changes that really benefit, you know, working class people. So corporate special interests tend to be concentrated in direct corporate contributions. Here in California, unlike federally, corporations can donate directly to candidates and just the lobbying and the and the massive expenditures that they do. If you see, you know, if anyone's familiar with Proposition 22 in California, Uber and Lyft and other rideshare service companies and delivery app-based companies spent millions and millions of dollars trying to fight back a law that would require um, them to have Uber drivers as employees, which would have, you know, mandated minimum wages and healthcare benefits. Corporate interests wanted to fight that because they would have had to make all those expenditures. So it's really upholding the status quo and trying to keep things as they are, benefiting current corporations. Makes right. sense. There it is. I mean, yeah. Prop 22, you said? <laughs> okay. All the props in California. That's a whole nother Every Yeah, every <laughs> single time like California comes up, I'm like, wow, like this is a whole new can of worms for me. I mean, they happen, but not, not the way I feel like they happen for you guys. <laughs> well... For our next question, this is, I feel like, an interesting one, especially kind of you touched on it when talking about California politics, but what can you kind of explain the difference between, like, being progressive and, like, being a Democrat? I feel like just, like, kind of how conservative and Republican can kind of be interchangeable. Like, what really are the differences there? And, like, if someone claims they're progressive, how does that differ or it does it even from being a Democrat? How does that work? Yeah, in California politics, it's definitely a lot less clear than it is at the national level, because the national level, there's clear standards that, you know, progressives want you to support things like a Green New Deal and Medicare for all. And so there's clear things that happen there. Whereas at the state level, it's easier to kind of get away with, oh, well, you know, we can't do a whole Green New Deal. We can't get away with universal health care because we're just a state here. But California, you know, with uh, being one of the biggest economies in the world, can do a lot of these things. And yet we have, you know, because we have such big democratic control, we have super majorities in both houses in the assembly and the Senate, which just means that it's more than two thirds of the, of the houses are occupied by Democrats. And so we have so many people where if you want to run for office and you want to make it to the legislature, a lot of people are going to do it as a Democrat, even if they skew maybe towards a more conservative ideology. And so we tend to have Democrats who, you know, both proudly proclaim themselves as moderates or centrists. And then we have people in the middle who, you know, want to maybe maintain the status quo, accept a lot of money from corporations, refuse to support progressive legislation, but yet they call themselves progressive. And when they campaign, they, they tell all their community that they're progressive. And it's easy to say, oh, well, I'm against Donald Trump. And in your mailers, people who don't know what's going on in Sacramento just go, oh, that's the person I want to support. They have a D next to their name. Yeah. Perfect. I'm good. But here in California, that's not you know, going to cut it because we need Democrats who are actually going to push for what's in the party platform. And when you look at our California Democratic Party platform, what's actually crafted by activists and elected delegates to the state, 
it does not align with, you know, what our legislators support. And that's where the problem with who is really a Democrat and who is a progressive stands. I I love that. I mean, see everyone listening, they want us to be uninformed. They mm-hmm. want us to not critically think. There it is. Like you look at that flyer that you get in the mail about this candidate and you're like, oh, anti-Trump, let's go. I'll vote for you right now. You know, and it's like you don't actually you have to do, you know, the digging, especially if they're an incumbent and see like really what have they got done, yeah. especially in a state like California, where if you have a super majority, like you could really get whatever you want done, but it's not really happening. Mm-hmm. So why is that? You know? Yeah. But let's get into it. State California state politics. Here we go. Excited about this conversation. Yeah. I was going to say that is like the direct perfect segue because you know, the Democratic Party has this veto-proof majority, as Maddie said, like, it would make sense if so many things were happening, like, it was, like, the land of check marks because you couldn't keep up with how many things were being accomplished, but doesn't seem to be the case. But what does, like, this veto-proof majority even mean? In theory, it means that, you know, whoever our governor is, the legislature can pass bills, the governor could decide to veto them and say, no, we don't want to pass this. And it could go back to the legislature and they could decide to override that veto and pass that still into law. But that hasn't happened since the 1970s. And so we have this veto proof majority, but there hasn't been the legislature hasn't tried to go against the governor in a very long time. Even with bills that get almost unanimous support in both houses of the assembly, the governor vetoes it, they often decide to defer to the governor because we have such a powerful governor here in California and it's so many executive orders, almost kind of like how the president is doing a lot. We have a lot of that in California. And so because of the way kind of the establishment works, a lot of people don't want to stick their necks out for a piece of legislation if they can just kind of wait and, okay, he vetoes it. So it's off my plate. It's not my fault that it didn't pass, right? I voted for this. And so you can go back and say you voted for this without having to really challenge the power structures. So what is the disconnect between, you know, these Democratic governors we have in California and the state legislature? Like, why... Why are things getting vetoed? Why is this happening in California where, you know, the state legislature can put something through to the governor and then he says no? And then why are there so many executive orders from the governor if, like, there is a kind of pathway through the state legislature to make it happen? Yeah, I would say one, you know, cynical take is optics. Our governor, I don't think it's a secret to anyone, wants to run for president someday. Might have gotten messed up by Kamala Harris getting appointed as vice president, now having a Californian ahead of him in that line. But I think it was pretty clear for for many that he wanted to run for president. And so, you know, a lot of the executive orders and a lot of the headlines that California made during Trump's presidency, where California sues Trump, California makes order and direct, like, you know, opposition to Trump, all these things. And there were some great things that were done in terms of climate. Gavin Newsom did make some great executive orders that, you know, slowing down, like doing more tailpipe emissions to decrease emissions from transportation, things like that, that were directly in opposition to Trump and got a lot of headlines. But that's what's flashy. Whereas some of the more controversial bills, the governor doesn't want to sign, doesn't want to have that be a headline, doesn't want to, you know, have to have that on his record for, say, he runs for government or say he happens to be in a recall election like he is now. He has to face the voters and he has to, you know, be justified in everything that he did. And so now this year, we're seeing a whole different calculation of what does the governor want to do? And we'll wait and see in August and September when the governor gets to signing bills and vetoing bills. But I think there will be a marked change this year as well as he's facing, you know, the voters ahead of a recall election. So what's an example, though, of like a bill that's can't come through, you know, his Democratic state legislature that he vetoes? 
Well, I would say he hasn't vetoed anything this year, but one bill that uh, he kind of said he would support, but ended up not supporting was this bill SB 467. And so it was this bill that he said he would support. And then basically if Gavin Newsom wants to support a bill, he can put pressure on the Senate and the Senate, you know, leaders to push it forward. And instead, you know, it was killed by three democratic senators in committee. And this bill was to mandate 2,500 foot setbacks from oil wells between schools and homes and oil wells. And even states like Texas have this and, and oil rich states as well. And so we don't have this. There was a really great article the other day about in, in the you know LA Times about this girl who grew up next to an oil well and is now dealing with cancer and from a young age was dealing with these health issues because she lives 300 feet away from an oil well. And the science says that just doesn't cut it at all. And so we had this bill to mandate this. It was you know, thwarted last year as well, as well as this year. And Gavin Newsom publicly says, you know, I support this and I want to, you know, phase out fracking and all these things. And while I got killed, he decided to put in this executive order that instead of doing setbacks, he said, we can phase out fracking, new fracking permits by 2024. And we can phase out, you know, overall oil drilling, or I'll ask someone to study it by like 2040. And that's what he did instead. And so he gets headlines for, you know, supporting this phase out of oil drilling without actually doing a whole lot right now. And he goes to the wildfire sites, you know, last year and says climate change is real. He had a really viral tweet, climate change is real. And the very next day signed 20 fracking permits. And so we have, that's, that's kind of the exact type of headline grabbing, you know, ways that he maneuvers around legislation in order to, you know, accomplish whatever, you know, the establishment wants to keep in place. That's some tea I've ever heard, so. I mean, okay, Gavin. Me we Gav. Please, please. Yeah. Yeah, we actually just did a clubhouse yesterday. We were talking about the recall. So this week has been Gav heavy, but it's okay. We're into it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about California being a blue state. Is this the case, especially, you know, at the state level? Like what is this? Is this real? Like what's going on here? Yeah, it's definitely a blue state. I mean, we do have, you know, some of the strongest laws in the country around, you know, gun violence and, and red flag laws. And, and you know, there was a ban in AR-15s that's been and an automatic weapons that's just been overturned and it's kind of an appeal right now. But we've had that for, I think, 30 years almost now. We have some great policy that, you know, is is still being uh, sought at the federal level. And so it is a blue state. You know, we do have all these Democratic legislators. We have all these Democratic mayors. But it's not a state that's willing to be bold and be transformative in the way that it passes policies and the way that it can. Exactly. Because everything's on the table. Like, why not make this a place where we don't have economic inequality or we are vastly limiting where we don't have a housing crisis, where we are housing our unhoused populations, where people are not living in the same neighborhoods as oil wells. We don't need all of these things to be California and to be as great as we can. And yet we allow them to continue because it's easy and because it doesn't threaten to topple, you know, the establishment and corporate interests like we've been talking about. And so here in the state, we are blue, but just enough to where we don't have to push the envelope. That is so wild to me, just like as an outsider on this conversation of like being on the other coast, because like the reputation is so that of like California pushes, you know, the envelope. California is the one leading the charge on big change. But then to see like, okay, the reality isn't necessarily that is crazy. But I mean, it it is and it isn't. Obviously, that's Mm -hmm. what's kind of it's Mm -hmm. like a 
it's like a big cloud around yeah. it. It's like, right. Yeah. Right. You know, you have Gavin Newsom who, you know, claims to be a climate champion and then approve fracking permits. It's like a facade mm-hmm. to, you know, really just be able to cater to corporate interests while still like putting on exactly. this facade of, oh no, we're progressive. Oh no, we're like leading the charge here. It's like, it's hard for people to even see that. I even have such a hard time living here and like fully understanding the politics here there's things to be proud of but then there's also like a lot where you're like what the right. f- is actually going on like this it's all super confusing and like this is so eye-opening in so many ways but and it's confusing on purpose you yeah. know that is by design because if everyone knows what's going on if you know you know your legislators voting against something in committee or what happens a lot is vote legislators will abstain from voting on a bill when it's on the floor and then it doesn't pass there were a lot of bills even just this past week when they had a legislative deadline that got 37 votes, 36 votes, 39 votes, and it needs 41 to pass the House. And more than 15 Democrats just didn't vote. They were all there. They all knew what was in the bill. Yeah. And they decided, no, no, I'm just going to kind of stay out of this, right? I don't need to put my name anywhere near it. And what were you elected to do if you're not going to represent your constituents in a vote? If you're not going to vote on every piece of legislation, if you're there, what were you elected to do if not just cater to people who want the status quo to not pass yeah. bills? that are going to change things here in California. There's nothing more wild to me than like the political sick day. <laughs> yeah. Like the, you know what the I people mean? People who like, didn't show up for the like the insurrection vote. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what are you doing? Literally, like just things like that crack me up because like the stuff that people get away with in the political field like that, like not showing up for their constituents and voting, like they literally have in their job description. Like right. if that were any other industry, you would be like fired or you'd be like, put on like a plan, like, you know what, let's see if we can improve this in a week or two, Mm -hmm. right? And then Mm -hmm. like, that would be the mechanism. And so it's just so wild that like, you're just, you get off scot-free. It's like them and weather people. Like you can be wrong or you cannot participate (laughs) and you're like still golden. So, I mean, maybe they can all be friends and hang out. And not only do they get away with it, but they get rewarded. Right. They, you know, get corporate contributions so that they can stay in their office. So not only do they just get away with it, they're like, oh, here, have some money. Like, here, have hundreds of thousands of dollars. Thank you so much for choosing to not do your job, right? They're incentivized to stay with the corporations and yeah. stay with the lobbyists rather than their constituents. And they don't even tell their constituents, right? Half the people probably don't even know that they just sent a legislator. And there was there were people I was watching, you know, the live stream as votes came in. There were people who I, you know, on all the top legislation that was, you know, teetering between 35 and 45 votes, some that passed, some that didn't. I didn't see them vote on a single piece of legislation there in that in that window. And if you're not, you know, voting for the consequential pieces of legislation, it's just it's it's quite frightening that that's our elected representatives here in California. But I will say this, something we need to talk about is like a little bit of background for some of our listeners that aren't California based need to get like a little bit of the lay land. Obviously, we've got like the focus on like what the mentality is, like what California's reputation and politically is. But in terms of some of like, just like the dry facts, let's go through some of those. So like, obviously huge state, like literally huge. How many representatives does the state of California have? Yeah. So in our state legislature, we have 80 members in the assembly and 40 in the Senate. So 120 total, which when you compare it to other states, you look at New York, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, they all have 200 or more representatives. States like Georgia have up in the, you know, 190s of representatives, and we have 120. Our state senators represent more people than a member of Congress does currently. 
We have 40 state Senate seats. And in California, we have currently 53 congressional seats. So they represent a lot more people. That is wild. What on earth? Is there like a rationale? Is it like the districts are bigger? Like what's the deal with that? Just how it was designed and how we've had it. And, you know, there's, you know, there is a progressive push and people who would love to see it expanded or multi-member districts or a whole bunch of, you know, things that overall are, are seen as like democracy reform and things that would allow constituents to be better represented. But there's not a lot of push on that because what senator is going to push for something that threatens them having, you know, being one of 40. So that's the problem we have now is no one's going to, you know, vote in that interest necessarily. And so we're not going to see, you know, change probably anytime soon to the number. And that just attracts an insane amount of spending, even, you know, as we know, because the spending matters a lot because there are so few state legislators, every campaign matters and, and corporations want to, you know, make sure they're selecting the right people. And in a state where Democrats rule, you see corporations, I think this is another thing to note that's very interesting when you look at other states or, you know, congressional seats is things like the oil industry, not a big Democratic contributor. When you look at national politics, they, you know, it's mostly to Republicans. They want to get Republicans in Congress for the most part. Yet in California, they do support some Republicans, but because the Republicans get so few bills passed through Congress because they are such a small minority, they choose to support the Democrats that they know will go to support their agenda. And so industries like oil and, you know, pharmaceuticals and, and just corporations in general that typically support Republicans at the federal level will contribute to Democrats in order to get their agenda passed and to maintain that. And so I think that's a really interesting piece as well as our seats are so big that it's worth the investment for these oil companies to make sure that they can keep drilling in California for as long as possible. Yeah. But okay, that's like one California bucket. What about propositions? I know we chatted about this for like a hot second earlier, but like, what's yeah. with the props? Like, Very interesting. And you know, something that honestly, when you look at other states that have propositions, oftentimes lead to really great reform in other states. You look at like Florida enfranchisement of, you know, formerly incarcerated people. You look at things like Medicaid expansion, ranked choice voting. These are things that have been valid propositions in other states and like have succeeded or, you know, at least been proposed. In California, we have tons. A state might have one or two in a given election cycle. We almost always have, you know, somewhere around 10 or more. And it's been a very longstanding thing. We have a lot of propositions that lead to a lot of bad policy right now because they're propositions and now, you know, they've been done by the voters. And so the state legislature, it's a lot harder to address things that were, you know, enacted by voters. And so we have things like, you know, that, especially with housing, we have a lot of problems with housing and taxing, thanks to propositions from in the 80s and the 90s, when, you know, there were conservative movements to, you know, have better tax rates and things. So and there's a lot of propositions that now try to reform those, but there's just such an insane amount of corporate spending that it's hard to know. And there's the voters are too low information about the propositions. Yeah, it's hard to know which side to be on. Totally. And then, I mean, you even think about, you know, the legislative process just in general, when we think about it, how it's like a bill is proposed and then it's like yeah. amended and people work on it and really like dive into different details and take things out and put things in. And it's like a long, thorough process usually, or it should be. But when you kind of put it to the voters, sometimes like it's literally black and white, it's yes or no. And, you know, you might like one aspect of the bill, but there's might be an aspect where you're like, I don't yeah. think that makes sense. But as a voter, like, what are you going to choose? But like even before all of that, like, can you also kind of tell, like, highlight the process of like a proposition, like, and how it even gets on the ballot yeah. and what happens after? 
Yeah, so there's a couple of ways. So one of the ways is actually uh, certain bills that pass through the legislature have to then go to the voters. So this was true of, and they're usually towards the end of the proposition ballot, I believe. I know Proposition 25 was one passed by the Assembly and the Senate. It was dealing with like bail reform and ending cash bail. And then like Prop 22 was passed in the form of AB5. And this Prop 22 was speaking to directly like rideshare based services. And so it was like kind of in response to that has to go to the voters. But so a lot of Bill, bills might become propositions that have to be approved, especially around like spending things. And then you can also get one on the ballot by getting a whole bunch of signatures. So kind of similar to what happened with the recall, how they got the, a whole bunch of signatures of people wanting to start a recall against Gavin Newsom. It's a similar process for the ballot propositions. And so any big wealthy person can be like, hey, I want this on the ballot and I want voters to decide and basically just pay a whole bunch of people to go out and collect signatures for months and get it on the ballot. And it's, you know, it is, there's kind of different phases of the timeline and, you know, not every person who sets out to get a proposition on the ballot does, but that's why we have so many is because it is, you know, relatively easy to qualify compared to other states. That's wild. That just also makes me think of like polling bias so much and like survey bias, like taking me back to like sociology and college of like using leading questions. And I feel like a lot of the ways that like propositions are written, they're kind of position in a way where they're leading you to a certain answer without any of obviously the context. So I feel like it can not only be like very confusing, but like you could be voting against your interest if you didn't do your research ahead of time without even knowing it, just based off how it's phrased. Yeah. And you would think, I mean, we're in a state where you want to say the people of California want to support progressive reform. And I think a lot do. And you can see that in who they vote for statewide and things like that. There are a lot of Californians who support progressive change, right? And you can tell by, you know, who they donate to and all this sort of metrics. And yet when it comes to propositions, all of the, you know, progressive propositions, ones that were supported by progressive groups and, and endorsed by progressive politicians, and even the ones endorsed by, you know, the Democratic Party, a lot of them failed in 2020. And this was, you know, a really hard year for a lot of people who, you know, spent their whole election cycle fighting for these ballot propositions and voters rejected them and by, by close margins for sure. But you know, there were things to allow, you know, 17 year olds to vote in a primary if they could vote and if they turned 18 by the general election. A lot of other states have this and it makes sense when you think about it. If you're voting in the general election, you should be able to vote in the primary to decide who's in the general election. And it also gets young people more engaged. Voting earlier gets you engaged if you can, you know, get people to sign up earlier. But yet that got rejected. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why are people, you know, in the state against 17 year olds voting in a primary? Who knows? You know, there's there's a lot of questions about propositions like that and, and why they don't pass. And there's a lot of also, you know, ones where there's a lot of whole lot of corporate spending. There wasn't a whole lot of corporate spending against the one to let 17 year olds vote. People just, you know, looked at it and decided how to vote and, you know, maybe took three seconds to read it when it was on their ballot and hadn't even heard about it before going to vote. And so, you know, especially with, I think, like vote by mail here in California and how prevalent that is people get ballots in their home and they sit down at the table and they open it up and they just, you know, kind of go through it and fill it out. And they probably know, you know, who they're voting for, for president and who they're voting for if there's a Senate election and for their congressman or congresswoman, but they're not going to know 10 propositions. And so we see a lot more progressive reform from propositions when there's one or two in a state, but we just have so many that it's, oh, it's all the propositions. I don't know anything about them. And so you kind of, they kind of all get lumped together, which which is unfortunate. That's overwhelming. And also, too, makes me think about, like, 
in like a hearing, for example, like the order of questions that you put forward always matters. And it's like the same thing goes for the propositions, right? Like if you don't lead with the most important one and someone loses steam by the end, I mean, totally. they're just going to like put in a little circle and be like, eh, that oh, one yeah. sounds good enough. The amount of friends I have that like reached out to me in November, like what, what, what are you voting for this proposition? I have no idea what this means. I'm like, here's my you know, attempt at understanding it. Like, it's even hard for, like, people who are informed to fully understand, you know, a proposition, but also, like, fully understand comprehensively, like, what it is and its implications and, like, what could happen from it. And, like, sometimes that's a lot of weight to carry, yeah. you know, as a voter. Yeah. But mm-hmm. anyways, let's talk about next year because we have the midterms, you know, depending on what happens, like a recall in California, we have our, you know, governor is up for election again. So what's coming up for California state legislature in 2022? What races are included? Like what should people look out for? And also like, what is your guys's involvement in light of 2022 coming up soon? 2022 is a enormous year in California politics. We have our statewide elections with two, you know, newly appointed statewide officers. Those are also big deals. You know, we have our newly appointed attorney general, newly appointed secretary of state facing the voters for the first time, as well as a governor, given all what's going on with the recall, which should happen sometime in 2021. And is a big focus of Democrats now. And we also have redistricting, which is kind of the the big game changer that no one quite knows what it's going to do. California is going to lose a congressional seat so one of our current members of Congress will not be there come, you know, 2022. And that has a lot of implications. You know, members of Congress might retire. They don't want to deal with it. Members of Congress might run against other members of Congress. They might find themselves in districts where, you know, their ideology no longer matches the district. So they might be drawn into a district that suddenly now has more conservative voters or more liberal voters, depending on their ideology. And so now they struggle for re-election. And so 2022 will have a lot of movement because of that. We also are starting. Wait, do you mind explaining what redistricting is and like how that works? Definitely, yeah. So redistricting every ten years, the uh, the census happens, and so hopefully everyone filled that out to get counted. And the census, based on the census data, so in normal years, by now we would have it, and we would be drawing new congressional lines and new state legislature lines for the 2022 elections. And every state around the country, federally, statewide elections, all of that, everything gets redrawn to more represent the new population. So in California, we've had population change. We have people, you know, especially down in LA, a lot of people have moved out of LA towards, you know, maybe the Inland Empire or people leave the state and move to other states. So states will gain congressional seats or lose congressional seats based on their, you know, raw population. And then within the states, the lines will move around because every district is supposed to represent the same amount of people. So you have to change around the lines. And we ha- we in California here have an independent redistricting commission. A lot of other states will do partisan commissions where the state legislators actually draw the lines, which seems like a crazy idea that they can draw their own lines that they're going to be elected under. So luckily we have an independent commission here in California, which draws the lines and takes into account kind of where communities are, where populations are, how are people going to be most accurately represented by their elected officials. So we're going to have new lines, which totally scrambles everything. And and this year with the pandemic, census data is delayed. And so we're expecting it, you know, in late August, September, November with, you know, elections, the the California primaries in June. So it's it's pretty much actually exactly a month or a year away from right now. And right now, candidates don't know where they're running. They don't know what the districts will look like. And so it's hard for people to jump in and start running campaigns. And for grassroots candidates, 
that's especially challenging because you need to be in it for a long time to raise the money and build up the support. Whereas a corporate backed candidate can jump in and get hundreds of thousands immediately. That's not the case for progressives. And so that mounts a very big challenge for 2022 for the state legislature. We also have a very interesting dynamic because um, of term limits. So uh, a 2012 law established new term limits. So every legislator can now serve 12 years in Sacramento. And so we have four open state Senate seats happening in 2022. So there's already a lot of people jockeying for those seats because they only, there's only so many legislators and anyone who has ambition, you know, jumps in. And we also now, you know, none of the assembly members are termed out in 2022 because it was passed in 2012. So 12 years from then will be 2024. But a lot of people will look to maybe run for other office. People in power and who are aligned with the establishment they want to stay in power. They want to run for county supervisor or they want to run for mayor or they want to run for sheriff. And we're already hearing a lot of signs of legislators looking at potentially jumping ship and running for other office. There's already a couple assembly members who are doing this. And so that totally changes the calculations because it is hard to beat an incumbent here in California, the state legislature. And so open seats are a very big opportunity. Challenging incumbents is also very important, but it's just you know two very different things and something we're looking at definitely both in 2022, but there will be a lot of shakeup because of redistricting that we don't even know the implications of now. That's a lot. That is crazy. <laughs> it's a big year. It's a big year. Definitely. And so what, I mean, what do you guys, what's your strategy going into that year? And like, do you have any candidates that you have backed already? Or like, when will that start? Is there any one you would like to highlight for people to know more about? Like what's going on with you guys? Yeah, so right now we're, you know, focusing on our two our, our second special election candidate. Her name is Janani Ramachandran, running in Assembly District 18, which includes parts of Oakland, Alameda, San Leandro, in the East Bay of California. And that election's on June 29th. So 20 days, we're coming into the home stretch. Ballots have already been sent out in the mail. So that's a big focus of our attention right now. And trying to get her elected. The former assembly member's wife is running, several elected officials are running. So there's a lot of stakes. There's a lot of money flowing into this election and we're hoping to you know, elect a true people's champion in Janani and hosting a lot of phone banks and events for her in person there in Oakland as well. So we're doing that right now. And then our 2022 process is gonna get kicked off pretty soon. We're you know, discussing endorsements right now for several candidates around the state who have you know, already declared and there's a lot of candidates who haven't declared yet. You know, we're seeing still very low rates of, of candidate filing because of the redistricting. And so we're doing our best to prepare for, you know, what is to come. And normally this is when, you know, by early summer, by midsummer, candidates will have announced and are fully running, especially in 2020. Our primary was back in March because to tie up with the presidential primary. And so candidates had to be running, you know, really in by summer to mount serious challenges. Now that's totally different totally different calculations. So we're looking at candidates in 2022, both who are challenging incumbents. We have a couple of great people we're looking at who are you know, looking to challenge incumbents and challenge the status quo. Someone we're looking at right now is Fatima Iqbal Zubir. She's running in the area of North Long Beach, Carson, Compton, Watts, challenging an incumbent who's backed by millions. And that's not an understatement in money from the fossil fuel industry. He's someone who you know kept his name off multiple bills that needed his vote the last week in the assembly. And he decided, you know, no, I'm not going to weigh in on that because they might not back my reelection again. Fatima ran in 2020. She ran an awesome campaign, but getting 43% of the vote, which is a big deal for a challenger. She got 43% of the vote. And we're hoping to increase that to 51 or more in, in the next election in 2022. If we choose to endorse her, we're going through that process now, but definitely someone we're keeping an eye on. Aisha Wahab is someone in the state Senate seat up in the East Bay. It's an open state Senate seat. 
She's running against someone who right now was a Republican two years ago, has made multiple homophobic comments in recent days, and is just really problematic for a whole host of reasons. And so she's running against them. So that's another race we're looking at. And obviously, a state Senate seat is a very big deal. I think she would be the first Afghan-American elected official in the country if elected. So she's another person who has been leading on the fight for working families and we're looking at and lots more candidates to come as we wait and see who announces. Wait, I have, an, I have a question too. Do you have any advice for voters in California, but beyond when looking to really combat like corporate control like we've talked about, which is literally everywhere, not just in California. What are some tips, I guess? <laughs> yeah. I think one of the biggest things, like I mentioned at the beginning, is see where they are in the community. You know, are they holding town halls? A lot of representatives don't hold town halls, which is, you know, something that's just the bare minimum of hearing from your constituents. You know, take a look at their votes. See if they align. You know, a lot of groups will do scorecards for legislators. So there's a ton in California. Courage California puts out a really awesome one called Courage Score. California Environmental Justice Alliance will put out one, California Teachers Association. So you can look at scorecards, look at your representative, find the district and where are they voting and where are they lining up with, you know, advocacy organizations that align with your interests and then see what community groups in the district think about them. Talk to organizers on the ground and, you know, if you have a specific issue that's, you know, really important to you, whether that's climate or guns or housing, you know, talk to someone in the district who, you know, is an expert on those issues and Talk to them about your representative or the candidates. I'm sure they'll have, you know, an opinion and happy to talk to you. And, and then just go try and find your candidate in your community. You know, they'll always be publicizing events. And so find, you know, people who are running and who, you know, really want to show up. If someone is willing to take the time to talk to you as a voter, they're probably already doing a lot of better things than our current incumbents are doing, you know, in the legislature right now who are, you know, reluctant to talk to their constituents because so often their votes are not aligned with, you know, those things. So talk to people, find out from community groups who are doing the organizing. And, you know, if there's a specific issue, even if you're just on an email list of, of some advocacy organization in your state or in your district, like find out what they're doing, find out if they're endorsing in the campaign. I think endorsements, you know, there's a lot that goes into endorsements and, and, you know, what groups are supporting, but you can generally tell at least somewhat, you know, what candidate is good on the issues by endorsers because they do a, a whole lot of research. If you want to look up, it's all public access information, what candidates are spending on, what they're raising, who they're getting contributions from. Federally, it's on like the FEC website. You can go and you can look up like any amount that is being given or spent from federal candidates. Uh, we have a similar thing at the and the state level through our Secretary of State's office, but it it is complicated on purpose. The websites are not user-friendly. I would say one website that's particularly user-friendly is Open Secrets. They do a lot of really great reporting and transparency work, and you can go and just like type in the legislator's name and they'll compile all the information for you. So that tends to be a little more accessible for people, and you can see there kind of where their money's coming from. Well, I love that. I love a scorecard. I love Open Secrets. Honestly, like sponsor us, guys. Like if you hear Open this, Open Secrets please. is like a nice place to go get some like tea. Like it's, oh, you know. Oh, for sure. You can it's, find out so much on Open Secrets. So much. Yeah. It's, it's honestly entertaining. My favorite. It's kind of like you feel like a detective. A thousand percent. <laughs> like literally put on like a little Sherlock hat and like roll over there. My yeah. favorite is literally like Mitch McConnell's page, but that's like a whole whole nother topic i could go yeah don't like don't look at the number of corporations on there it is like anyways but regardless so much is happening 2022 i can't believe i'm even saying that year as if it's real it's coming like yeah crazy bananas but so much is on the agenda before we you know sort of wrap up and all that good stuff where can people find you where can people find super bloom like 
give us like the full plug action. Yeah. Website, projectsuperbloom.org. We have, you know, ways to get involved, sign up for our email list, a little bit about who we are. We're planning to launch a candidate page soon once we have kind of our 2022 candidates kind of process going. And so you'll be able to go there and say like, here's the five candidates around the state who are actually aligned with the people and who we should support. I think like a big thing of political participation is give $5 to four politicians you think are really cool, you know? It's such a little amount, but it goes such a long way to contribute to the true grassroots champions you want to support. And so that's a big thing we're trying to do. And so ways to plug people in. And then on social media, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Project Superbloom. We post our candidates there. We post our fundraising there. When we do phone banks and events for candidates, we post that there. When we had our initial launch call, we had some four really awesome state legislators. There are a few, as much as we've talked about the bad ones, there are some really great ones who were on our launch call. And so we advertise events like that. Come and hear from a state legislature who's actually on the front lines and whose colleagues are the ones who are barriers to progress. You know, they they know that experience more than anyone. And so we like to have events like that where people can come in here. And yeah, so a lot of our updates are there. We have like a Slack organizing space if someone really wants to get down with us and, and get organizing and that's accessible, just like reach out to us on, on Instagram or Twitter. We're also on our emails team at projectsuperbloom.org. Like People, we want people to reach out. We want to connect with young people. Anyone who's like, wow, that sounds so cool. Like, what's a pack? Like, how do I start one? Like, what should I be doing in my state? We want to we wanna connect with young people and, and build up the experience because so often, I think, as you said earlier about, you know, getting jobs and entry-level positions in campaigns, it's like, oh, well, you should have interned on like five different campaigns already, even though you're 18 years old, right? That shouldn't be a requirement. We want to build up people's experience now in work that they're actually excited about. And state legislatures are a very easy way to get involved because campaigns are so much smaller than federal campaigns. You can work directly with elected officials and candidates and just like talk to them and, you know, like work with them every day. Whereas you're not going to get that experience, you know, maybe on a Senate campaign. So take a look at state legislators, take a look at your local city council. There's so many ways to get involved in campaigns that, you know, make more aligned with your values than stuff at the federal level. And you can make a bigger impact, I think. Totally. And like, yeah, even if you're listening and you're not in California, reach out to Project Superbloom, learn about PACs, learn about, you know, how to get involved in your state. Like you said, that's all amazing. This has been so fun. And this conversation has been so great. I This is going to be one of those conversations that like, I'm going to be thinking about the rest of the day. And I'm going to be like, oh, I wish I said that. I wish I asked this. But 2022, we'll have to have you back on and hear what's going on and all the tea then too. So we just appreciate you. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Yeah, I was so honored to be here. And, and thank you for having me to talk about this issue, because it is so important to get the word out. And, you know, that's amazing work that that you all are doing here with this podcast, I think is making it accessible, it shouldn't be confusing. And it's designed to be confusing to keep people out. And so young people can, you know, we are the people who are going to be elected officials in the future generations or right now, hopefully, you know, this is this is what we're going to inhabit in the government we're going to have. So, you know, more accessibility, more involvement is always, you know, important. And so glad you guys are championing that and happy to talk about what's in California. And there's so much going on in every other state that, you know, needs to happen as well. Totally. Hopefully this is an inspiration for those elsewhere to also you know, check on their state government too, because it's so important. So thank you again for highlighting that. Okay, well, you know what, guys? It's time for some top stories. I don't know what it is with today and me trying to sing like Kylie Jenner, but it's just going to be a theme that we see throughout. I don't think that's just I a don't... today thing for you. 
Is it not? I don't know. Is this just like I mean, a... maybe not on the show, but I catch it constantly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Maddie's keeping me honest. Guys, wow. It's okay. I No, we love you it. You know what? You gotta love a daily... That's one of my many sound effects, though. Rise um, and shine. Not really sure where to take that. But more importantly, we do have some news stories. And that news is about the G7 Summit. Not to be confused with that age-old song involving a G6. a G6. It's like okay. a G6. And I really wanted to Wait, be a G7. Who but it's that? not. Oh my god, it's really about... Who, who sang that song? I don't know. Um... Like a G6. Far East Movement. Never forget. I am. Did they ever have any other songs? No, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> it was a, a one-hit wonder. They, were, they flew in and they flew out yeah. on that G6 appropriately. But the G7 Summit, everyone. <laughs> Joe Biden got on a plane and went to the G7 Summit. That is the wraparound, you know, tie-in here. But here we go. Anyways, what is the G7? You're like, okay, we know the G6 was G7. G7 is <laughs> is shorthand for the Group of Seven, an organization of leaders from some of the world's largest economies. So it includes Canada, France. <laughs> oh, are you? <laughs> By the way, Sam and I like started this episode like both yawning. Like we maybe said one word to each other before we started. Now this is like just delirium. Like this, whatever is going on today for us. I hope everyone enjoys, but France, keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK, and the US. So that's the G7. Members of the G7 meet each year for a summit to discuss pressing issues on the global stage and coordinate policy. Sounds like a lovely time. So in a typical year, international security and the world economy are often key topics of discussion. This year will be no different, but will also include, of course, recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, which is expected to kind of dominate this year's meeting, the conversation, which has. So the G7 is primarily just that venue for coordination, and the group has produced decisions of consequence in the past, and they're hoping for more of that this time around. So ahead of this year's summit, for instance, G7 finance ministers agreed to back a global minimum tax of at least 15% on multinational companies. The G7 group also agreed that the biggest companies should pay tax where they generate sales, not just where they have a physical presence. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said Saturday that the agreement was a significant, unprecedented commitment from the world's richest economies, aiming at preventing companies from avoiding taxes <coughs> Amazon, by shifting profits overseas. Biden said the leaders' endorsements of a global minimum tax would help to ensure global equity and a proposal to finance infrastructure projects in the developing world would counter the influence of China, providing what he said was a democratic alternative. So that was sort of what we had going into it. Here's what else has happened. Unified front against threats by China and Russia have become a priority. G7 powers failed to agree, though, on a firm date to stop burning coal, which is something that climate activists said was a deep disappointment ahead of the global climate conference later this year. And President Biden... This is so weird, guys, but it's like freaking... I added this in. I had to. This is just... It's because I just finished The Crown. I'm like obsessed. Sorry. Oh my God. Okay. Next pandemic. I'm going to get through that show. I'm only halfway through (laughs) next pandemic. But President Biden said that Queen Elizabeth reminds him of his mother. (laughs) I just... Well, I didn't... 
I didn't think we were going to make it through that story for a second there at the beginning, but we made it. We're here. And, you know, just continuing on this international relations front, shout out to all the IR majors out there. I know there's a few listening. We're talking about the G7 summit, but also the NATO summit, because that's next. So that's this week. And so what is that? What is NATO? NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It is a military and political alliance. And so NATO summit is a gathering of the leaders of NATO's 30 member countries. Major topics under discussion include collective defense, emerging technologies, climate change and security and other important issues. And so President Biden will participate on June 14th, a.k.a. Monday in the NATO summit in Brussels that brings together the leaders of all 30 allied nations and the allied leaders will launch an ambitious set of initiatives to ensure NATO continues to provide security to its citizens through 2030 and beyond. Some of the goals of the U.S. for the summit include endorsing a new cyber defense policy for NATO that will strengthen allied coordination to ensure the alliance is resilient against the increasingly and frequent and severe threats we face from malicious cyber activity, which we've all seen those headlines. They also hope to affirm that NATO's ability to ensure our common defense relies on maintaining our technological edge. So we love that. They also hope to agree to a climate security action plan and set the ambition for NATO to become the leading international organization for understanding and adapting to the impact of climate change on security. And they will agree to reduce greenhouse gases from military activities and installations in line with national commitments under the Paris Agreement and agree to initiate a regular high-level global climate and security dialogue. And, of course, they want to reaffirm their commitment to their common values, including individual liberty, human rights, democracy, and the rule of law. So both the G7 summit and this NATO summit was kind of a chance for the U.S. and especially for Biden to kind of gain some respect back because we definitely lost it from our prior administration. Trump was like not about nato not about these summits was he's trying not, to get rid of it yeah he was he trying was, to be like peace out cub scout yeah and he was didn't like didn't want to participate so biden really had to come in and kind of be like we're back we're normal again and please trust us again so yeah important little international relations stories here that's where our president is in the past week but here we are important stuff especially on the climate front on the covid front so we'll see what happens again the big takeaway was at the g7 summit them agreeing to back a global minimum tax of at least 15 percent on multinational companies so that was kind of the big moment one other takeaway too just to think about in terms of this lovely summit is that the leaders together agreed to donate at least 1 billion vaccine doses against the coronavirus to lower income countries over the next year which will be in a coordinated effort to end the pandemic in 2022. Let's hope. So let's hope. Yes, let's hope. Let's make this shit happen. Yes. Well, that is it for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Eric learning about California and all the drama and also the G7 summit, the NATO summit. And shout out again to our IR majors. But subscribe rate review follow us on instagram um if you're not following us on instagram right now you're just missing out you're really missing out you get more content you get to know us a little bit more 
If you follow us on Instagram, you can submit questions to hear on the show and tell us any topics you want to see covered. So DM us. We want your DMs. We want them. So follow us on Instagram, DM us, follow us on TikTok. And I guess we'll be talking to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.